Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin, and I am coming at you, I don't want to say live, it's a pre-recorded show, but in this moment where I'm saying this into the can, I'm coming at you live from the city of Moscow, the capital of the Third Rome. I am back. I'm here for an interesting conference, so be sure to follow me on all the socials to see how that is going, but I'm not going to let that stop me from bringing you the news this week and talking about World War Now. Of course, there's no Ether Hour this week, so to all the supporters, I apologize, but we should have a new Q&A thread going up soon for supporters for our next Q&A, and we're going to have a big episode with some guests coming out pretty soon behind the paywall as well. So don't lose hope. The content is coming for you. But all that being said, this is a huge week in World War now. Some of these stories are, it's almost as if we made the news happen this week. So Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad, and it's good to hear from you from the third Rome itself. And yes, absolutely. We're looking forward to that thread coming up in order to hear all of your input, guys, all the great discussion questions, which, of course, we look forward to covering maybe in a week or a week and a half or so upon your return from Moscow. But the news is quite varied. It's obviously not as explosive as last week. I think many, many news won't be as passionate as the episode covering last week. But this week, definitely some really, I guess we can see the fallout after the fall of Avdivka itself in Russia. This is most important coming from Western media sources, a lot of people crying, a lot of people upset. The death of Navalny has caused uh, an uproar right in Western media. They've essentially used it to cover up any sort of Russian successes in the Donetsk Oblast claiming that Putin is a murderer, essentially claiming things which essentially aren't substantiated at all, which, it, and notice it's just the same as with the COVID story, right? When the COVID, when the COVID pandemic hit, they all began claiming that the COVID vaccine was the only solution. All the countries are like, like a one united head, well, they're all like the heads of the Hydra began speaking about this one particular issue and we're having one solution here as well. It's like Navalny has died. The Russian successes in Avdivka do not matter because internally Russia has destabilized. But as you can see, Conrad, you're in Russia right now. And in fact, the country is not just stable it's incredibly civil and beautiful and things are taken care of and essentially something that has taken place somewhere on the north pole right which probably has something to do with you know external forces interfe interfering as we've seen from the news essentially from from ukraine itself ukraine has published somehow received footage from the actual prison of navalny i'm not sure how ukrainian journalists have received it probably probably either cia mi6 spu spies have somehow made themselves or you know either purchased this footage or made themselves uh somehow integrated themselves through maybe from the 90s maybe some sleeper cell agents were active in russia this entire time since the yeltsin years but nevertheless this story kind of in the west at least paints a dark sort of pattern over russia and its recent successes but for those in donetsk avdivka the victory is is seen as like a, a ray of hope a ray of light especially in light of all the bombardment that's been happening recently and Denis Pushilin, the head of the Donetsk People's Republic, actually arriving in Avdiivka wearing a helmet supported by guards, looking at the surroundings of some great churches still standing in that particular town. Most importantly, the Cathedral of St. Mary Magdalene has been visited by a lot of the Russian forces. It was right next to the bombardment zone, and miraculously, this church in Avdiivka has survived. Neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians have actually struck it. And yes, it has been hit by some small shrapnel. You can see some pieces of the roof have been damaged, but inside the church itself, it's basically just dusty, and it can be re refurbished quite quickly. It's just small miracles like this, I think, uplift the spirits of not just the Russian people, but also the local Ukrainians who have now become Russian citizens. And look, they can still, they're not being persecuted. They can still worship the one true God. And of course, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ looks mercifully upon those who actually fight with Christ in their hearts. And I think that's the most important message is that Avdiivka was freed by Russian Orthodox soldiers. And in fact, this Orthodox Christian religion actually unites all the people living in Ukraine and, and Russia, regardless of what they identify themselves as, whether they identify themselves as Ukrainian or Russian going forward. 
yeah, of Divka, we've seen some interviews and videos of people that were in their houses during the entirety of this battle. The fact that anybody remained there is actually insane to me. But many of them, of course, have said that they were just waiting for years and years, decades even, for some of them, for Russia to finally show up. And now they're there. So another liberation has occurred. And of course, a story that is going to be probably one of our main openers here is something that we've talked about since the very beginning of the show, and that is Prednestrovia Transnistria. And it's back in the news because according to Russian, Romanian, all sorts of news outlets, the Transnistrian government is about to call what I believe would be the sixth Congress of the Prednestrovian legislature and the, the government there. And because there's only been six, you can deduce that those are, those are called when very important things happen in Transnistrian statehood and what's going on in the surrounding areas. And it seems that the rumors are that they will be voting and assessing a plan and establishing a desire to integrate themselves into the Russian Federation. And of course, that is that would be a dramatic escalation if Russia were to actually support the Prednestrovians in that in that endeavor. But of course, we know we love Transnistria, and we love Vadim Krasnoselsky, who is the head of Transnistria. And he himself, despite the fact that Transnistria has hammers and sickles all over its flags, and it's a very Soviet-looking place as far as aesthetics are concerned, he is an avowed monarchist, a lover of the Russian Empire. And so perhaps it's part of why we hope for Prednestrovian integration is that that might help boost forward, you know, the imperial ideas in Russia and, you know, the love of the czar and have more. I mean, he would enter Russian politics. You talk about Denis Pushilin, who was just a Donetsk guy. You know, he was in some of these nationalist circles. And now next thing you know, he's the head of a Russian oblast. And the same thing could happen to Vadim Krasnoselsky and some of these other characters in Chistria. It is integrated into Russia. And of course, that would help, I think, move the ideas that we would like to see in the Russian Federation forward. But outside of that, this is big news because of the huge ammunition depot that is in Transnistria and, of course, just the extremely relevant location right on the border with Ukraine next to Moldova, which is basically the other major European non-NATO country at this point that Russia is looking at in its sphere. And, of course, this all comes along as Medvedev has called for Odessa to come home. So, of course, Transnistria will always become more relevant as Russia continues to creep closer to Odessa. Yeah, that's right. I think Transnistria, a lot of people actually underestimated its importance to both Ukraine and Moldova. Naturally, it's that buffer state, which if if it was integrated in, into Ukraine or Moldova, or maybe even split into half by these opposing forces and Transnistrian sovereignty would be you know, taken aback by the Western-sided Moldovans. Naturally, Moldova would, of course, have an opportunity, legally speaking, to actually enter into NATO because at the moment, Moldova really, it is a Western-sided state. Its Prime Minister, Maya Sandu, really wishes Moldova to enter into to NATO and the EU proper, but it cannot because, again, the uh, statehood or at least the territory of Moldova is currently compromised by this existing sliver of a state between Moldova and Ukraine called Transnistria. And naturally, Vadim Krasnoselsky is a giant barrier and like barricade for Moldova to actually become allied with its, uh, with its, I guess, spiritual uh, spiritual neighbors in the West. But we should just consider the, the, the one most important factor in, I guess, Transnistrian ge geopolitical importance today, and that's the Kalbasne Ammunition Depot. So there's a village of Kalbasna located just, I would say, in the north northeastern part of Transnistria currently. It's an old Soviet munition depot, which naturally uh, is from the Cold War era, 1940s, 1950s, going back almost to the end of the World War II and the siege of Berlin, which was used by Soviet logistics in order to, you know, 
push the Third Reich further west. And this particular, it's essentially uh, located in the side of a mountain. It has a lot of underground storage. In terms of actual munitions being stored there at Kolbasna, we're looking at 20 to 30,000 tons of various munitions for, from artillery to early fab bombs. A lot of the munitions there are actually made for Soviet-grade weaponry, which, you know, Ukraine still almost half of its military, despite the fact that the West has been supplying Ukraine with a lot of this updated NATO technology. A lot of the Ukrainian military still uses it these older iterations of, you know, I guess you can say, Soviet weaponry. And so this munition depot, if kept captured by Ukraine from Transnistria and if taken by Moldova, maybe they can split it in half uh, between Moldova and Ukraine. It could actually really bolster the Ukrainian um, munition shortage situation, which has been essentially one of the main talking points of the second half of 2023 and Zelensky crying that they simply are running out of munitions and the Russians are overpowering, overpowering them logistically. And this could perhaps solve that issue, at least for a short duration. So um, would there be any benefit of Ukraine and Moldova using maybe a pincer strike maneuver on Vadim Krasnoselsky's Transnistria in the near future, especially with this weird referendum type situation that they're having with the Transnistria you know, potentially looking to join Russia at the end of February. So the dates we're looking at here is February 28th and February 29th is when the meeting in Transnistria will take place. And so potentially Ukraine and Moldova may be provoked to actually strike on Transnistria. I think that's the main discussion point. And this Kolbasnia Munition Depot, which does have Russian forces stationed there. So, you know, the question arises, Conrad, it's like, well, is Russia going to react? Well, Russia simply can't react. I mean, Russia is not adjacent to Transnistria in any way. Yes, it's an allied state, Transnistria, in order to actually reach it, as we've spoken about on previous episodes. Russia would need to go through the Odessa Oblast, which is a very quite a large Ukrainian oblast with the great city of Odessa. Ukraine has built it up over the last few years. They are expecting a Russian amphibian-type operation. Odessa is one of the main port cities operating on the Black Sea. It's probably one of the largest ports at the moment. So Ukraine is definitely it's intrigued. It really wants to defend that particular area. So Russia has its work cut out for it. And frankly, those Russian forces, there's only 1,700 or so soldiers stationed in Transnistria belonging to the Russian Federation. They're kind of between a rock and a hard place. How will they well, will they surrender if the Ukrainian Moldovan forces strike on Transnistria, you know, to try and take out this rebel Russian Republic, this new sort of Lugansk and Donetsk appearing on the west side of Ukraine, very uncomfortably so for the Ukrainians, because essentially, if all of Ukrainian defenses are facing north and eastwards, suddenly they have to look to the southwestern corner and notice that there is a pro-Russian, this weird separatist type of republic appearing there. And Moldovans look at, of course, Transnistrians as separatists, but Ukrainians simply will see them as hostile. And, you know, there's that high possibility that we will see some really hot military actions at the end of February here, especially, yeah, it is a leap year, so we might get that strange, like, February 29th occasion taking place in the West, you know, very unfortunately for the people of Transnistria who, they don't have the, the the best economic situation, but they do love God and very, you know, there are a lot of churches and monasteries per capita in that particular small country. So looking forward to seeing how Russia can perhaps contribute and maybe save them from any sort of calamities and maybe even a Ukrainian aggression, perhaps the diplomatic action could be taken here. And of course, there's the eternal question of Moldova's accession into NATO, which we know that NATO wants, but Russia obviously wouldn't accept that. And it's one of those things where while on the one hand, Moldova is currently unable to enter NATO because of the Transnistria conflict, you know, one of the prerequisites of joining is not having ongoing territorial disputes within your territory. So on the one hand, the kind of middle ground of Transnistria right now does help Russia. But I'm wondering as well if this Congress is going forward, if Krasnoselsky perhaps picked something up that maybe the Ukrainians or the Moldovans were going to try something in the next few months. 
and he would rather just go all in now. Of course, we'll never know. Maybe we'll have Krasnoselsky on the show someday. That's a dream. But yeah, the Transnistria thing is, again, I think even in our first episode, if not our first few episodes, we were talking about this and how this is going to be something that will ultimately be a lever that either side can use in different directions, whether it's the West wants to launch an attack or whether it's Russia wants to give credence to this upcoming Congress and referendum. It's definitely going to move the conflict forward, to say the least. But before we get on to a few more things regarding the front line and everything, our good friend Milorad Dodik was in Belarus and in Russia. Of course, he met with Lukashenko and with Putin recently. And of course, we've talked to Jim Jatris, who's also you know, friends with Dodik, and he has been to Serbska many times. And again, Republika Srpska is standing strong against Bosnia and Herzegovina and Christian Schmidt, the you know high representative from you know from Europe and from the Hague and whatnot. And they are standing strong for Serbian sovereignty. And it's it's good that Dodik is is making these connections because there's a lot of interested parties that would want to see him gone. So it's good that he's got some powerful friends. But Dmitry, what do you think of his meeting with Lukashenko? Because Lukashenko said some pretty interesting things as well. I think it's quite faded. Look, we speak about Milorad Dodi quite often, and in very fond lights, especially when he's compared to uh, you know somebody like Vucic, right, in Serbia. So Milorad Dodik is like the best, I guess, orthodox version of what a Serbian politician should be like, what a real Serbian leader could be if Serbia, you know, actually had the opportunity to elect a person like that without, you know, electoral interference and things of that capacity. But Dodik naturally visiting the last dictator of Europe is like a big sign, I think, for both uh, Bosnian Muslims as well as liberal Serbs that look, um, he is being inspired by, you know, in, from, in their eyes, the wrong type of people. And he also, it wasn't just like the secular leader, Lukashenko, who isn't an Orthodox Christian. He isn't, he doesn't practice as more of like a Soviet agnostic type of guy, but he also visits the main cathedral of Minsk, uh, you know, venerates the Minsk Fiotokos, a really famous icon in the Orthodox Church and probably the most famous icon of, of all of Belarus. And Dodik, as an Orthodox Christian, meets up and speaks, has a one-on-one -on -one meeting with uh, Metropolitan Vitali, the exarch of Belarus and Metropolitan of Minsk, so the most important bishop of that particular region and diocese, right, essentially. He is similar to Metropolitan Anufri of Ukraine, I would say. That, that would be the correct comparison here. So Dodik essentially knows his audience and he knows exactly who he's appealing to at home and overseas and he knows the strengths, right, of this orthodox unity and it's not just this it's not just based around being slavic it goes beyond that and the ties between the balkan christian people and the russians are a lot closer it's not just you know, the unity of r1b or r1a genetics haplogroups similar culture but it's the fact that you know these are the last remnants of eastern orthodox christian civilization which simply have some sort of sovereignty or at least have a potential future in world geopolitics and Dodik understands this and he's uh, using it as sort of leverage against a new world order. He's leveraging these connections and the opportunities he still has. It's really amazing. And he did meet with Vladimir Putin as well in Moscow. So Dodik is really making a sort of like a two for one trip here to the Eastern States, kind of maybe solidifying his position. And look, he's similar to Krasnoselsky. Dodik is this uh, a leader of a small I guess, a small conglomeration of Orthodox Christian Slavs in these Eastern post-Soviet states. You have to consider that he doesn't have much power and he, he knows that the eye of Sauron of the, you know, NATO and the EU, all these liberals internally as well as externally are watching him and they're ready to pressure him into action. But he fear fearlessly goes and meets with essentially the enemies of the West today, the enemies of this new world order as Metropolitan Neophytos enlightened us again with this great interview we'll discuss later. Dodik meets with these people. And he openly essentially calls out 
the masters of, you know, who rule essentially still rule over Serbia, a large proportion of Serbia and Greece has, as we found out last week, and Dodik essentially calls them out by meeting with these people like Putin, Lukashenko and Metropolitan Vitali. So I think it's a big sign. It's a very brave sign from him. And going forward, it's one of those inspirations for future Orthodox Christian politicians in these countries that look, you can actually be an underdog and you can still come out on top bravely and visit some of these people and have private consultations about how to build your future country in a Christian fashion. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And of course, Putin awarded Dodik the Order of Alexander Nevsky Award, which he says it was for his great contribution to the development and cooperation between Russia and Republika Srpska. So, you know, Dodik, he's now a He's now a denizen and a, a warrior for St. Alexander. So may St. Alexander Nevsky bless, you know, the people of Serbia and the people of Srpska specifically. And you mentioned how, you know, it was a brave thing to do because, of course, he is protected in his, in his place in Srpska. He has people protecting him. He has the support of the Serbian patriarch. But at the same time, you know, he has to deal with this Muslim front. And we, we've seen how he has, you know, balanced, you know, the Islamic rhetoric around the world and everything, because at the end of the day, it's tough when your country is Serbia or Montenegro or whatever it is, and your leaders that represent your ethnicity are wanting to get into the EU. Meanwhile, you have these Bosnians and Albanians that are full-on irredentist, you know, they want to make every country that they're in totally Muslim. And there's talk in all these countries, there's communities that want to institute Sharia law. So of course, you know, I think it's brave and very bold of Dodik to be kind of standing athwart, you know, the Muslimization. It sounds like we're back in 2015 again with this kind of rhetoric, but he's still one of those leaders that has to deal with that directly, not in like a mass immigration kind of way, but in a clash of civilizations way, because there is still that Muslim remnant down there in the Balkans in Europe. We we didn't get all of them, you know what I mean? So he's got to deal with that, but I think he's in good hands. I think uh, Srpska's in good hands. He's just such a big imposing guy too, you know what I mean? He's got that, he's got that presence, you know, he's got the Serb. He looks like you know, when you look like you look, you think of like a oh, Serbian war criminal, you know, he kind of looks like that, but in a, in a good way, not in a, I don't mean that, but Trumpian, of course, exactly. But as, of course, the Navalny fallout, Dimitri, you kind of covered most of it at the beginning. I can say here in Russia, there's no protests, there's nobody, no one's really crying in the streets about Navalny right now, but kind of a way to transfer to there from Serbia, we see Dodik going all out and, you know, Vucic. You know, he's, you know, he, he makes his own little statements. You know, he refused to clap for Navalny's widow, I believe it was, when she came on the stage to address a big group of, of leaders at one point. And it's Navalny's widow has been doing a whole press tour around everywhere crying about it. And of course, now there's these stories about what is going to happen to Navalny's body and the potential funeral. Dimitri, I'm wondering your analysis on what that could lead to. Yeah, I think it's just worthwhile to mention kind of looking forward prospectively at what this uh, what this weird accident death or killing could have could turn into right eventually and because truly speaking I've, I've heard very bizarre versions such as Navalny could have been assassinated by essentially a CIA sleeper which was planted long before Putin ever came to power for example during the Yeltsin years and then of course transferred prisons and simply taking him out there because yes Putin himself and a lot of Russian senior officials have said that the CIA directly was in power during the Yeltsin years so there could be very deep sleeper agents within the Russian government but still, they're not really. That's not really a fifth column. That's just straight up espionage and essentially, uh, you know, covert covert ops happening on Russian soil. Which, again, as we've seen with the various Ukrainian terrorist acts, it's it's very much a possibility here as to who could have potentially killed Navalny in prison if if that's what he does. You know, if if he was actually killed or not died from natural causes. But his funeral, right? Uh, 
potential black swan, maybe a catalyst for a colored revolution type event. As we've seen, his mother has been openly calling for his body to be revealed to her. She hasn't seen it yet, and she's essentially creating these clips, posting them online of Kontaxin on YouTube, claiming that Navalny's body still hasn't been revealed. They are looking into, you know, his uh, the cause of death. The autopsy is going to be quite far right, and in fact, they may be retaining the body, looking into it for between 14 days to a month, which unfortunately, Conrad, if we look at it, the body may only be released closer towards, I mean, it's being kept on ice, literally. Well, they are on the North Pole during winter, so. But the body will be released to his family only maybe closer to the election, which would, again, align if the funeral was allowed to be a public funeral. And I'm assuming it'll be an Orthodox funeral. The funeral may turn into this catalyst for potentially a colored revolution type protest. And we've seen like protests occur domestically and internally in Russian history back in the day like this. It's very, there's some really clear examples like the 1905 revolution, which took place in Russia in Moscow, St. Petersburg. Uh, besides the various uh, Zio Jewish terrorist acts, which took place, there was a lot of Russians who were paid by Western powers and even Japanese spies actually paying for Russian internal protesters to cause uh, uprisings internally in Russia during that 1905 revolution and all those various psyops which were taking place. And of course, 1917, when just before the alleged abdication took place, a Petrograd uh, during World War One was there was a lot of uh, German spies doing covert ops. There was all kinds of terrorism. All various acts were being taken place domestically. And here again, it's just very possible, and it's a real real scenario. We've seen this in American history too, when there's various hippies began rising up against President Nixon during the Vietnam War, internally calling for the war to end, you know, uh, kind of on the, and essentially ending the Vietnam War somewhat prematurely. I'm not, uh, look, I'm not red-pilled on the Vietnam War yet, guys, but I think one day we'll probably discuss it with a proper American historian to kind of break that down. Enormous conflict in American history, but nevertheless, it shows you how an anti-war protest could arise domestically and really change, change exactly how that war is going. And this Navalny funeral, which will take place in the middle of March, roughly around the time of Putin's election, could be one of these events which unfortunately could destabilize the country internally. Very, very unfortunate that the death of someone who maybe we should all, you know, people should be praying for him, but it'll be used by these necromancers who we mentioned last week, these you know, these people who abuse the bodies of the dead. They don't really care about his soul. They don't care about his family. All they care about is utilizing him as a political pawn in order to push their agenda and destabilize Russian further, causing even more depths of Orthodox Christian people. So that's the end goal, I think, from my perspective. Naturally, I think the liberals are oh. going to applaud and go along with this ridiculous plan of destabilizing a country which is now in a two-year-long war. So dark times could be coming in the middle of March if their plans succeed. Yeah, we are recording this on the two-year anniversary of the beginning of the special military operations. So, you know, happy Z-Day, everybody. But I think you make a really good point about Navalny, especially the fact that, look, people are going to call me a shill for saying that I don't believe that Putin specifically ordered him to be killed. But to me, it just doesn't make sense why they would do that. Navalny is getting more press now, and the regime is getting more criticism than ever with his murder than anything that would have been possible if he was just in prison. Like, I don't understand how this isn't kind of clear to more people. It seems that they realized that Navalny was, you know, kind of wasting away in prison. They'd put so much, re so many resources into this guy, kind of building him up as the avatar of a potential color revolution in Russia. And again, here in Moscow, obviously, they're not wearing badges, but I'm sure there are thousands of agents, provocateurs that are ready to enter a crowd and agitate and escalate things if something like that were to happen, like a protest for Navalny or against the war or whatever it may be. And it seems to me that some, some powers that be ran the numbers and were like, all right, this election's coming up. We may not be able to get him out, but we can at least make it look pretty, you know, pretty turbulent if we kill Navalny, have it look like Putin did it, and then kind of enrage everybody leading up to this election in the middle of 
some pretty dramatic sea changes in the war, of course, with Avdivka, and then now we're talking about Transnistria and all of the Odessa rhetoric. And of course, uh, you mentioned Lukashenko talking about, you know, the thousands of troops built up on the border of Ukraine, on the border with Ukraine and Belarus. You know, there's there's talk about that. And of course, the question is, is Lukashenko bringing up that rhetoric because there might be another strike on Kiev, an attempt on that from Belarus? Of course, Medvedev didn't just say Odessa come home. He also said that, you know, Kiev is a historically Russian city, which that is definitely an escalation. Not that that wasn't already believed. And obviously Putin made that point in the Tucker Carlson interview that, you know, this these whole areas are obviously Russian by heritage. It, it would seem that actually taking Kiev, that's uh, that's either rhetoric preparing for negotiations or, you know, there is something big in the works, which it could be either one. I don't have any inside information on the you know, future strikes or anything like that. But, you know, Lukashenko, he's always strategically deployed his rhetoric and talking about the buildup there, of course, could be preparation for a move. I mean, maybe the Ukrainians are going to move on Belarus. They've done stupider things, not 100%, but that would be, it would be the near the top of the silliest things, but they have done some some other ridiculous things as well. And of course, with Dodik and Lukashenko and Putin, you know, we're building this this coalition of these leaders we have, you know, you could put maybe Krasnoselsky in there as well. And, you know, only two of those are full state leaders. Two of those guys are, you know, sub-state leaders. But that's, that's World War now for you, right? Like, this is part of the Third World War is the redrawing of the map. And it's something that we're always going to focus on here. And it looks like some of those redrawings are, you know, getting closer. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought the Medvedev interview was quite inspiring. It's maybe and a lot of people now become in, have become interested in Russian politics and Russian history. So Medvedev kind of continued that note. He's like, okay, well, the Putin Tucker in, the interview was hit, and you know they spoke about a lot of these cities being historically Russian. So I can continue that note and just claim Odessa is a Russian city, which it is. Odessa is historically a Russian imperial city. It was built by the Russian Empire. It was naturally a, it was completely constructed. Its success, a lot of its buildings, cathedrals, churches are attributed to the um, I guess just the hard work of honest honest sort of working uh, Russian Orthodox people who have lived in that city and also in the surrounding oblasts and actually having governance and actually contributed to it economically. And the Odessa we see today is is not even a Soviet Odessa. This is the Russian Imperial Odessa. The city really hasn't changed that much since those uh, ages long ago. But we, sh- we should mention that Medvedev, again, he kind of calls out, like the interviewer asks if he remembers the time when he was a liberal and Medvedev says, I was never a liberal. Or, you know, those photos you saw with me playing around with an iPhone or maybe like hiring a Chubais to work on nanotechnology, which was really weird. Again, that was like a waste of funds back in the day, maybe in 2008, 2009, I think it was like tens of millions, of, essentially hundreds of millions of dollars were poured into Russian nanotechnology by Chubais, Anatoly Chubais, who now, who then later went to invent the Sputnik vaccine, things like that. But but all that money was allegedly wasted. Medvedev was blamed for all this. Medvedev was, again, blamed for being too much of a liberal uh, in that f- short three-and-a-half, four-year period. Uh, the playing around of iPhones, he was really intrigued by a big Mike, Michelle Obama, by Obama himself, you know, being a black president. Like, that was really fancy when Medvedev and Obama would be hanging out. And that was really strange for Russians comparing Medvedev back then to Putin. It was just a complete, like... 180 degree turn and so Medvedev was like no 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 I was just putting on a diplomatic face I was this hardcore I was hawkish back then but it's like Medvedev let's just be serious my friend like you've changed and and you change for the best right a lot of you're allowed to change you're allowed to become more conservative as you age and I think that's what we're seeing here Medvedev is really you know he's just saying it's not just me typing these weird messages on telegram I've actually become more openly hawkish and more conservative but Medvedev did warn the reporter he said there are bigger hawks in the Russian government than me 
And so, you know, we should Russia should be respected, and Ukraine should really consider moving towards a uh, you know some sort of peace deal, which I think we've been talking about for a while now. But but yes, this victory in Avdiivka, uh, the realities are that Russia is Russia does have the leverage here. The ball is in Russia's court again, and Russia is stretching the Ukrainian army. The Ukraine is like forcefully conscripting. There is a new law being introduced in Europe as well. Just while all of this is going on in the east, Conrad, there's a there's a new law being introduced in Europe about actually bringing back Ukrainian refugees of fighting age men specifically and them being allowed Ukraine being allowed to bring them back into the country essentially which I don't think this a law of this sort has ever existed for refugees before in Europe especially you know refugees from African and Middle Eastern countries we could they love them but refugees from Ukraine no they have to go back they have to fight they have to be conscripted and mobilized and this is just uh, com- completely inconsiderate, inhumane, and it just shows that Zelensky is ready to fight till the last Ukrainian, uh, as long as his NATO leaders tell him to do so. And so Medvedev gives a clear signal that Russia's ready for negotiations if the other party comes to the table. But at the moment, we're just not seeing that. Yeah, when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine, we're going to move on in a second, but we're seeing so many videos of soldiers that have, whether they've deserted, or of course we see the videos of a forced conscription, and then we of course get the propaganda videos from the mercenaries and the people on the front lines begging Congress to approve these billions of dollars for Ukraine that the Senate has approved, but the House is waiting, and it's good, you know, that the House is taking more of an America first position and not writing off billions of dollars to Israel and to Israel and Ukraine like we've already done. But of course, that is leading to what we're seeing right now, which is, of course, the fall of places like Avdivka and the retaking of the entire east bank of the Dnieper for the Russians in Kherson region, which is a good thing to see as well. And as we, you know, consider the future of the pushes and the offensives, it's it's important to also recognize how much of this is, you know, brinksmanship and as, you know, Brother Nathaniel and others, Metropolitan Neofitos in an interview said as well, we're going to talk about that in a second, that it does seem that Putin wants peace. And while we have made our stance on the show clear that we think a peace will be achieved with more territory gained, it's important to recognize that we're definitely in the stages of, I think, where negotiations, the stage is being set. No side is going to want to, at least on the Ukrainian and the Western side, are going to admit that they're ready to negotiate. But I'm sure behind the scenes, all sorts of plans are being drawn up for how how they can take this. So unless you have any other thoughts on that, Dimitri, I think it's time to move on to the caucuses. Yeah, I think just... Two, two minor points, I suppose, stories that have come out this week, naturally on the Russian side of the of Kherson, so just on the Russian side of the Dnieper River, the Ukrainian forces have been pushed completely back to, to their side of the Kherson Oblast. So for, for, for once, that Krinky area that Ukraine has controlled on the, you know, I guess the Russian side of Kherson, which stressed the Russian forces out so much. And actually, they implemented something like martial law. They had curfews in the Kherson Oblast where everybody had to be home by 8pm in the evening. And it just got very intense and stressful towards the latter half of 2023. Suddenly, the Ukrainians have been pushed back. So this success in Avdiivka is not just unique to the Donetsk Oblast in Kherson as well. In Zaporozhye, Russian success is just across the board. And, you know, very obvious. And this will be used, of course, in any sort of negotiations going forward. The other, I guess, element of negotiations will be the potential economic leverage that Russians have over these strange Polish farmers, right? These Polish tractor drivers who have blockaded the main highway and, and the freeway leading out of Ukraine to Poland. And this it's turned into a 27 kilometer long traffic jam 
of, you know, there's thousands of trucks waiting to enter Poland from Ukraine, carry, you know, carrying goods, grains, things like that. You know, essentially uh, very important for Ukraine to actually sell those goods to their European neighbors with you know, very low tariffs and things like that, which the Polish farmers absolutely hate. And about 2,500 trucks from Poland not being able to reach Ukraine. So these Polish farmers, they really don't care about the fact that the Polish government is liberal or anything of that sort. Uh, they are driving around a posters like, Putin will come and he will restore order here. Like, just this really strange messaging, which is very Lukashenko-like. And it, when you look at these farmers, these are like, these are Poles. These are not Russian agents. These are actual Polish people, the patriots actually rising up and are blockading the roads leading out of Ukraine in order to pressure the Zelensky government. And when Zelensky, one of the ministers of Ukraine, actually arrives and tries to speak to some of these farmers, like find out who the leader is, they're saying they will not negotiate until the end of March 2024. So until like the 28th of March, there will be no talking to anyone from Ukraine. So Ukraine is you know, really facing a lot of pressure. And again, without this bill, as you said, being even passed through the House, if this bill doesn't pass and if this funding isn't isn't organized, perhaps Ukraine will be pushed towards a potential short-term peace treaty deal with maybe some further considerations being given to to Russia. And maybe Russia could then focus on some of the some of the other weird stuff happening, say on its southern borders and maybe a, a bit less on Ukraine, for example, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yeah, the EU are about to basically reappropriate hundreds of billions of Russia's dollars overseas. So Russia, you know, needs to be taking whatever economic and trade benefits they can around them. But regarding defense and their neighbors, we're going to talk about the Caucasus. And the big news, uh, Nicole Pashinyan has officially pulled Armenia out of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. We had covered in the past how he blew up one of their latest meetings that had to do with the whole region. I remember Lukashenko's face as Pashinyan basically refused to sign like the, the order kind of every year where they renewed the collective security treaty. Uh, Lukashenko was like, what is this retard doing? <laughs> now it seems that now it seems that he's gone all out and he has left, you know, the the Russian version of NATO. He no longer has Rus any kind of Russian security guarantee. And of course, his claim will be that, well, they didn't help us against Nagorno-Karabakh. Well, you didn't even recognize the Republic of Artsakh as a country yourself. Mr. Pashinyan, so expecting Russia to defend it for you based on a treaty that it doesn't cover is a little bit ridiculous. But Pashinyan has also been warning that an Azeri invasion is imminent, that Azerbaijan views Armenia as Western Azerbaijan, and that basically Armenia is at risk of no longer existing. And his brinksmanship is bringing him much closer to France. We've known that Macron has kind of been the main guy bringing Armenia into the Western sphere. And the Armenians recently got a big load of armored trucks and vehicles from France that they're going to be using, while at the same time, though, the Azeris have acquired a much larger purchase of Israeli weapons. And of course, this raises the very interesting questions about the regions and the alliances between said regions, as Turkey has, of course, gone really hard against Israel rhetorically, due to, of course, their connection with the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, as well as just an attempt by Erdogan to emerge as a leader in the Islamic world. But that rhetoric kind of wears thin when your number one ally, your effective, you know, satellite country just you know, over Mount Ararat is literally taking thousands and thousands and hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons from Israel and giving Israel an insane amount of cheap energy. It seems to run a little thin, Erdogan. Yeah, there's a very curious connection between, you know, say the, the Zionists and the Hasids actually running the show in Kiev with, you know, that weird um, 
ecumenical patriarchate not and of course that ties into Erdogan and his relationship with the ecumenical patriarchate in Constantinople you know now Istanbul and of course this all ties together with again Turkey uniting itself with Azerbaijan its sort of closest neighbors supporting Israel directly but Turkey itself holding back and Erdogan himself you know as we've seen throughout this Gaza conflict since the 7th of October just really strongly rhetorically whipping Israel but not actually putting anything into action right it, it's all basically hypotheticals and he's stating that you know the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque will be defended against any sort of Israeli encroachment and we'll see exactly what will take place you know on the 9th of March during Ramadan when the pressure of the Israelis will mount upon the remaining Palestinians who still visit Jerusalem for any sort of like Islamic or religious festivals and things like that but but yes you're completely right Azeri presence and the sort of union with Israel has been a very curious point we noticed last week how perhaps the Aliyev family clan that runs Azerbaijan maybe they have some mountain Jewish roots Gorni Yuri perhaps which uh, probably ties them a bit closer to that particular land. It's not just the Israeli-Turkey sort of uh, alliance going on there. Maybe it goes a little bit deeper. But the planes actually carrying the munitions from Baku to the Israeli airbase of Uvda are actually Ilushin Il-76 transport planes, which are made in Russia. And again, those transport planes are so large. That's the one, the same plane that was carrying the personnel, the prisoners next to Belgorod, which recently was shot down by Ukraine as well. So these really giant, heavy planes are flying nonstop between Israel and Baku, essentially powering up again, just as Azerbaijan was assisting Israel several months ago, now it's the opposite. Now Azerbaijan, for some reason, is just retrieving a lot of its support from Israel, which is very interesting. So that we do have that weird Zionist alliance going on there. And again, no real action taken from Turkey. We've seen, uh, you know, when, when we do speak about the future, the fate of the Middle East and Islamic world, we'll definitely, I think, see Turkey on this in this weird maybe third-party-esque position where it's kind of like, well, it just wants to sit back and allow Israel to act with impunity in the Middle East. And it's it's Azeri neighbors. Well, Armenia won't find any support from Turkey at this point, I think. And what can we say about Macron? Macron is, you know, he does run run France like a Freemasonic free Republic. He is probably a Freemason himself. We haven't seen any lodge records, but he has given presentation at the Grand Orient of the Peoples of France Lodge. And, you know, he is quite active in that particular scene. And it's just weird that a Christian country like Armenia would seek support from perhaps the most uh, the most Masonic country in modern Europe today. It's just very suspicious. And I'm not sure Armenia will actually obtain sovereignty through armaments actually sent to it from this very strange, very forward, forward thinking. I would say forward as in like hellbound um, liberal, liberal country of Europe. I think it's a, it's a dead end. For Armenia, it's a deal with the devil, and we've spoken about these sort of deals before, the deal that Navalny has taken, and Pashinyan seems to be uh, completely for it, because, again, he has left the CSTO, and he's bound himself to this European monster, which will take him to the depths like a giant leviathan. Yeah, the France, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Israel question, that was that's a long list of countries I just did there, but it's a... It kind of shows some of the things we've discussed on the show about the unfolding alliances in Europe. We've always said that France... Maybe Italy, not as much recently since Maloney has screwed everything up, but France has always been one of those countries that was more likely to perhaps reproach with Russia because their right wing has always had a soft spot for Russia. There's always been a relationship between the two. And of course, we know about the history, even before Napoleon, with how influential French culture was, even after as well, on Russia and how, you know, we even talk about Gabriel de Rochon. I mean, he himself was in France before he went to the Donbass to fight for his country, of course. So there's always that French-Russian connection that, of course, someone like Macron is kind of turning it back to its Napoleonic era as far as Russian relations go and, you know, waging war against them. But the reason that 
he has gone so hard in support of Armenia is because France views Turkey as their number one Mediterranean enemy, basically. France has all sorts of mineral and resource interests that uh, go against Turkey. Of course, France has a history, not as much as Russia, of course, but it does have a history of going against the Ottoman Empire in certain respects. And France has, of course, we wish they had you know, done more to help Russia at times, but in general, France has that, that streak, and it is you know, more independent than a Germany or an Italy or a Cyprus or a Spain or any of these Scandinavian countries that have NATO, American bases and whatnot, whereas France, larger country, larger GDP, many billionaires, they don't have any of that. They have their own navy and army and everything, and they're fairly powerful. Of course, we know that the French army actually was really cleared out at the beginning of the special military operation because multiple officers, like high-ranking ones, were expressing sympathy for Russia and a realistic understanding of the actual conflict. So I don't know how many of those guys have been cleared out, at least a few. So perhaps the French army is not as based as it used to be. But as far as the Turkish-Azerbaijani-Israeli alliance goes, it does it does really show you how we, despite the fact that it may sound schizophrenic, that we are correct in our analysis and our prediction of the inevitable Russia-Turkey clash. And many have talked about this, of course. Strelkov has talked about this. And with Armenia becoming this new, you know, southern flank for a possible western, you know, western power, it seems that, you know, Turkey and France and Russia, you know, this big shakeup could could lead to all sorts of new alliances, whether a new leader comes in and starts reversing what Pashinyan did and goes all out for Russia, or if Armenia becomes actually threatened as a state and then Russia faces pressure to do anything. Of course, I don't know how that pressure will be given now that the CSTO is no longer in effect in Armenia, but it, it does seem like this is going to be a, a focal point for that inevitable prophetic clash between you know, Turkey, Neo-Ottoman, Erdogan's empire, and, of course, the third Rome of Russia. And we're always watching for that very closely, of course. And I think I was going to talk about this later, but that's a pretty good you know, transition into the recent interview of Metropolitan Neofitos on, on TASS, the Russian news service. And, of course, Metropolitan Neofitos, Cypriot Metropolitan, he's one of the main people who speak about St. Paisio's prophecies regarding Russia and Turkey. He's predicted things like the war in Ukraine, like the COVID pandemic and whatnot, due to his deep understanding of the prophecies and the patristic witness that he was that he was able to grow up around as a young monastic and as a young clergyman so i think we're going to talk about that a little bit little bit it was a really great interview one of the best that we've really heard recently and he talks all about how he talks about the tucker carlson interview with putin how he listens to it he talks about how he is praying for the top russian politicians at the personal request of svetlana medvedeva who is dmitry medvedev's wife and he even has some, and he has some other pretty amazing quotes about, you know, just the current situation in the war and with the gay marriage stuff in Greece, which we're going to get into a bit. But regarding the war in Ukraine, uh, his eminence said, the war that is happening now isn't a war with NATO. This is war against demonic forces and their energy. The Orthodox must understand this. Therefore, they, the representatives of the New World Order, undertook to separate us so that we would quarrel with each other, weaken us. What for? Because only Orthodox service to the Lord gives birth to saints. Demons in the New World Order are afraid of saints. And of course, Metropolitan Neofrido is a strong supporter of Metropolitan Onufri, a strong rejecter of the schismatics in Ukraine, and of course a warner of the future for Cyprus when the Third World War breaks out. While there will be, the Turks will move on Greece, there will be a pullout from Cyprus, and he himself is 
preparing for the day when he can, and he's even doing it now, evangelize to the Turks and the unrecognized Northern Cyprus territory. So I think when it comes to talking about the Armenia-Azerbaijan stuff, talking about all of those things, it's really good to listen to the words of a holy hierarch like Metropolitan Neophytos, and he shows that you can really tie all of this stuff together. He, of course, also talked about the legalization of gay marriage in Greece and COVID vaccines and all these other things. And I'll read this last quote from him before hearing your thoughts on it, Dimitri. He says, Various geophysical cataclysms are coming, which will occur in America, Europe, and Asia, and their consequences will be terribly catastrophic. And at the very end, they will escalate into a world war. When the Israelis strike Iran's nuclear program, countries such as Russia and China will be obliged to respond. The prophecies of the saints say that nuclear weapons will be used. And the most dramatic thing is, you know what? That Russia and China don't want this. This is what the New World Order really wants. They push them, put pressure on them to do it, to then say it's their fault. We said that the goal of the New World Order is to reduce the world's population. Therefore, nuclear weapons in world war, like epidemics, are an excuse for them. And at one point he said, understand what I said earlier, epidemics, world wars, earthquakes, floods, all those events that will lead a man to kneel and repent before Christ are already knocking on the door. So if you aren't warned before, you've now been warned about, you know, the times and days that we are in. And again, some people say like, oh, you know, this kind of analysis doesn't matter. You know, it all needs to be about the real politique. But just listen to what he said. It is in many ways a real politique perspective. And it shows that that our perspective is that the prophecies are just ahead of the curve in this complicated geostrategic world of thousands of different wills converging across national interests, across, re across religious interests, across ethnic interests. These things all combine. And of course, the Holy Spirit and God is above all of it. And things work out in the way they work out. You know, it's not to say that things are predetermined, but these prophecies are giving us a glimpse behind the veil into ultimate reality and are able to, in our moment now, give us a glimpse into what is inevitably going to happen, whether we like it or not. Yeah, I, th I thought the interview was quite insightful with the Metropolitan. And, you know, the hierarch tells us exactly who are, you know, some of the people and some of the families actually behind all of these acts. For example, he mentions George Soros specifically. He says, you know, he's involved. He mentions the Rothschilds family, the, you know, Jewish banking dynasty, which has run the UK and many other European banks since the 1700s. He mentions the Rockefellers, of course, the American business dynasty, which has betrayed American interests and kind of joined into this uh, New World Order conglomeration. He people like Kissinger who recently passed away as like the spiritual father of American diplomacy and international relations which you know, America really follows through and it is that realpolitik perspective that America really follows on from and of course he says uh, the name itself Zelensky the Kazarian a representative of the new world order and you know Metropolitan Neophytos has called him a Kazarian in the past but here he is not afraid of actually naming all of these people responsible and the, the hierarch knows what he's speaking about so he doesn't just name these particular people he's they're responsible for various acts and objectives that the New World Order sets out across the world, whether it be in Europe and the Americas and Ukraine. And he also mentions the names of the two, uh, I want to say heresy arcs, but they're mainly uh, you know, architects of schism in the Ukraine itself. So Metropolitan, uh, alleged Metropolitan Dumenko, uh, Sergei, and false patriarch of Kiev, Filaret, as well. These two names are called out by him. And he, of course, names them specifically as those in charge of the current calamities taking place. And Ming Conrad mentioned even, you know, I believe it was in the first or second episode of our show, that a lot of these calamities taking place in the real world, which are based on realpolitik laws and things like that, where it's essentially realist politics do rule over international relations and diplomacy, they're all quite, under, all of these events are underlined by the spiritual well-being and the spiritual health of your particular society and countries. 
So uh, that, what we're seeing in Greece today is definitely an example. And Metropolitan Neophytos does mention how Greece essentially is fallen and it's essentially asking for certain really bad events to take place. His words about Greece right now are not good and they're not positive ones. And, you know, we did speak to, you know, we spoke about this last week that if Greece doesn't react to what kind of, what the lawlessness taking place on its soil, the, the outcomes will be quite negative. And the Metropolitan warns all of the, all of his uh, Greek, I guess his Greek people, like these are his people. He speaks about the Slavics people, the, the Russian people, and of course the Greek people as a nation are facing enormous challenges going forward. Not just spiritual challenges, but physical ones too, because God will begin testing them and actually separating the wheat from the chaff and I think we'll be seeing some of that in the near future based on this interview. So as sobering as it was and as positive because, hey, Metropolitan Neophytos, in fact, he was the inspiration for the show, as you've told us, Conrad, in the first place. A lot of his messages were quite, quite strongly put. I think they were quite horrific, especially, you know, a lot of them were very, very big warning signs to the world. And if more hierarchs spoke just like he did here, I think the world would be definitely in a different situation. I mean, a lot of Orthodox nations would perhaps sober up and awaken a lot sooner, but we don't have that many metropolitans like him. So uh, here we are today, of course, uh, suffering under under lukewarmness and naturally being led by uh, people who really don't understand that the the time of the time of great calamity and tests is really here. I think the that peaceful area of the twenty first century where it was just just about going to the movies, watching Lord of the Rings, watching like weird stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean, watching the economy get up, you know, getting mobile phones, browsing the internet, playing video games, all this bizarre stuff that people were doing, including monastics, people like Andre Kuraev, you watching YouTube, all this weird stuff. That age is ending. That weird period of peace that we had in the early 2000s was essentially a test. Like, how will we use that peace and how will we utilize it? Will we build more cathedrals, churches? Will we bring a lot more converts and will we actually provide missionary work to the people outside of the church? And I don't think the fruits were there. And so uh, we're standing at the uh, at the precipice of some really major events, which he speaks about in this interview. Uh, it's quite quite scary, in my opinion. Yeah, we'll probably link the interview below. If not, find us on the socials and we'll have posted it. Briefly before we move on to Iran and stuff, he said that uh, the ban on flights between Russia and Cyprus was introduced by Western elites and their master is Satan who doesn't want ties between people and doesn't want pilgrimages and opposes the Holy Orthodox liturgy. I can just relate to that because I've been to Russia coming twice now. I've had to fly through Istanbul every single time, which is annoying. It'd be a lot more convenient if I could just fly from D.C. or Houston or somewhere and make it on over here. But of course, you know, the Satanists don't want Orthodox people to travel between Orthodox countries and have that kind of brotherhood, of course. But Metropolitan Neophytos mentioned Israel striking Iran's nuclear capability. And that is a really big deal right now, because part of this whole October 7th issue, and many say this was why it was allowed to happen as a possible false flag to begin with, was to get the US to strike the nuclear program on behalf of Israel. And of course, we know Israel itself has an illegal nuclear arsenal that they've pledged to use on the entire world if their state ever you know, comes under threat. Part of the reason why I'm skeptical of the nuke idea that we can even create a nuclear holocaust and somehow radiate the earth into anti-life, I'm not sure if that's even possible for man to do something like that. As Not that God wouldn't allow terrible things to happen, I just don't think we actually have that quote-unquote God-like capability. But right now, the only real Iranian... The only real issues Iran is bringing to the international community is its support for the Houthis, who are going all out. Of course, they recently sunk another ship after having sunk their first one, their first full big ship that they struck and then sunk into the sea last week. It seems that they are 
getting more precise. They are kind of finding the loopholes and the weaknesses in some of these American ships and their defense systems. Of course, we said that one of the American ships had to use its like immediate defense uh, systems against one of these missiles because it got so close, which shows you the progress that the Houthis are making. But it does also point out how little the rest of the Muslim world is doing when you look at how hard the Houthis are going as literal sub-state actors and facing huge American strikes. Yeah, the Houthis have uh, you know, shown us further success in what can only be described as the U.S.'s most stressful, most stressful naval battle since, uh, since fighting against the Japanese in World War II, as described by certain American commentators, which is a little bit shameful because, again, the Houthis uh, s- simply don't have any naval vessels of their own. It's a, it's a sea and, and sort of ground-type battle. But the Houthis have fired at a British commercial uh, ship, which you know they've accused of having uh, Israeli ties. It's the Ruby Mar, which we're speaking about here, and at first, the first reports from the Houthis were that the entire ship is sunk, and the you know the liberal West has reacted by claiming that this is a huge environmental threat to both the fish in the Red Sea as well as you know global warming things like that. Turns out the ship actually wasn't sunk; it was completely disabled by Houthi missiles, and it was then dragged to that one place we spoke about, Djibouti, that international mega corporation port controlled by several countries at once. You know, kind of preventing Ethiopia's mm-hmm. rise. Uh, so very interesting how that Ruby Mar is now being towed as we speak. Actually, it's completely severed from any ability to actually take itself through the Suez Canal. And it's just an interesting kind of link between, again, the Houthis and the Ethiopians who are still vying for any some sort of freedom from those those countries oppressing them. It's just a very interesting connection there. But the Houthis, yes, uh, successful in sort of baiting, I guess, the attention of the US. And Germany has announced that it will be also introducing uh, battalions of naval forces, which, you know, now we understand Germany has a navy, they'll be sending down ships to actually contribute to Operation Prosperity Guardian. And this is the first operation which Germany has contributed to since the Iraq war. So now Germany is being involved. The US, of course, has steadily begun turning down its rhetoric towards the Houthis because they've understood that this looks essentially like a second Afghanistan and the Houthis themselves on the ground are very much like a Taliban 2.0 type people who will simply not surrender as they've shown against their, you know, their war freedom against the Saudis. And, you know, going forward, yeah, these bombardments are now taking place uh, a little bit less frequently, maybe twice a week. The U.S. Uh, ships are firing on Houthi villages and actually trying to, you know, they're spending $600,000 missiles, right, to take out take out a village, which its average GDP is maybe, I don't know, a couple of thousand dollars at most. So essentially, it's not it's not really a fair battle for the U.S. forces and essentially wasting U.S. taxpayer money on destroying innocent civilians and their and their livelihoods in, in Yemen. It's really not contributing to anything. And that's why in, in the media, I've noticed the BBC, Washington Post, they've actually stopped reporting on the Houthi situation. In fact, it's almost not being uh, shown at all. It just shows kind of the US's failure to shine a sort of positive light on this particular event, which is taking place in the Southern Red Sea. Well, there's rumors of an Iranian spy ship that's supposedly in the Red Sea. The question is, is it helping the Houthis? Is that why they've been able to strike so precisely? Is that why they've gotten so close to American vessels? We don't really know, but there have been calls from some of these admirals that have, you know, like you said, said that this is the most intense naval battle since the beginning of World War II. Uh, They've called to sink that Iranian ship. So if something like that happens, that would be an extremely dramatic escalation. And of course, speaking of dramatic escalations, we see the Israelis about to do another one as Itamar Ben-Gavir you know, kind of the ultra-Zionist, Kahanist at the highest post in the Israeli security state and the National Security Council. He is calling on basically the exclusion of all Arabs from the Al-Aqsa Mosque in general, and basically just going all out on the initial 
issue that started October 7th and started this whole war to begin with, which was that rabbinical storming and ritualization of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque itself. So Ben Gavir seems to, we thought that Netanyahu wanted October 7th to happen. Maybe the whole, maybe this entire thing has been the Kahanists just making something happen so they can make greater Israel real faster and faster. Maybe it's because they see people like Candace Owens and others and people like Brother Nathaniel and Nick Fuentes, you know, blowing up and just naming them. But, you know, that could be why they have this imperative for greater Israel right now. But I think in general, if something like that Iranian ship in the Red Sea gets sunk, or if there's another big escalation on Al-Aqsa, or like Netanyahu is now talking about, the purpose of the Rafa operation is no longer exactly to expel everybody into Sinai, at least not openly. They probably will still end up trying to do that. The goal now is, you know, total demilitarization, the abolition of the UNRWA, which is the United Nations kind of mission in Gaza and Palestine. They, of course, accuse them of working with Hamas. But it seems that if one of these dramatic things happen, Iran may be willing to tell Hezbollah that they need to step things up. Because like we said right now, the Houthis are the only ones doing anything. The only thing that can be said for Saudi Arabia and these other countries is they are using their diplomatic leverage over the United States to push for the two-state solution. And that has been one of the more dramatic shifts. It seems that Biden and a lot of these Western countries are now fully in favor of a two-state solution, which is totally unacceptable to the Israelis and the Zionists. So it'll, it'll lead to some interesting disputes and relationship changes, that's for sure. Yeah, I think the one, uh, I guess, very, very important for the Muslim world relationship, which uh, hasn't been mentioned much by the mainstream media, is that relationship between the King of Jordan, Abdullah II, the defender of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the Palestinian people, because he, his wife being Palestinian herself, he of course has really strong interest to having actually Ramadan take place in a peaceful environment. And of course, as you mentioned, the Minister of Defense of Israel giving such strong anti-Palestinian, anti-Islamic rhetoric as Ramadan approaches on the 9th of March, claiming that, and this is quoting him, he says, entry restrictions to the Temple Mount are imposed on Arabs from Judea and Samaria. So this is Israel calls the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. Again, bringing up these Old Testament names, essentially supplanting them. And he states, only individuals over 60 years old, children under 10 years old, and no more than 15,000 people will be allowed onto the Temple Mount. So these really harsh restrictions onto these, you know, fairly uh, peaceful and harmless religious practices of the local Muslim people from the West Bank, which the West Bank is, again, not involved with Hamas, not involved with Hezbollah. They have their own thing going on with their own Palestinian Authority government. And in fact, they're directly adjacent to the people of Jordan. And naturally, the question will be, will Abdullah II of Jordan, the king, will he somehow react to this, react to the rights of Muslims being uh, tarnished and affected negatively by these Israeli supremacists? And at this point, we can say very clearly, it's not just the secular Jews who are bullying the Muslims. It's it's these rabbinical, uh, very sort of believing, as you said, like uh, it, it's it's more like a ritual humiliation of the local Muslims, which will be taking place on this, you know, on this t Temple Mount. And frankly, I think us Orthodox Christians were probably next on the line, especially considering that Great Lent begins on the 18th of March and Easter is on the fourth and fifth how will they allow us to worship uh in jerusalem this year we know of the holy fire we we recall all of those really deep and negative COVID restrictions which took place in israel when they didn't allow naturally any tourists or pilgrims and they had to force all the priests and monks to wear masks things like that but how will that go forward what what will they do to us after they take care of their muslim neighbors right so really deep questions and hopefully the king of jordan actually steps up just like his houthi islamic brothers in the south and perhaps uh, defends the you know the righteous cause of the people of palestine and 
not just Hamas, right, but the actual peaceful people protesting for some sort of rights in the in, in the only country that they have, in fact. Yeah, of course, the millions sheltering in Rafah have still, they're still undergoing, you know, bombardment and whatnot. And of course, the ceasefire has been called for. That was one of the biggest shifts. It seems that the U.S. is supporting some variation of one of these UN ceasefire resolutions, which apparently that's just anti-Semitic. So I guess every country in the world is anti-Semitic now, according to according to Israel. But <laughs> you talked about some miracles, some miracles and whatnot. We're going to talk about some of those Mer streaming icons here before the end of the show. But unless you have anything else you want to say on the Israel conflict, we could probably move on to Greece. Because, of course, last week I went off about this. You know, people were like, man, you got so heated in the last episode. It was because, you know, someone's got to do it because apparently the Greeks are not doing it enough. Of course, the white pill is we saw a metropolitan seraphim of Piraeus excommunicate every member of parliament that voted for this. So in that region of the Athens area of Piraeus, which is a very populated, large, relevant region in Greece and the Athens metropolitan area in the Orthodox world, none of those MPs will be taking communion there. Of course, I'm sure there's some bishops that they can scurry off to and find communion, but I hope that more bishops follow Metropolitan Seraphim here and go along and do this. Of course, we heard Metropolitan Theophytos' words, and he said it. I mean, I think Greece is in for some pretty large earthquakes, maybe some resurrected volcanoes and some other craziness if they if they don't start really making up for this. Yeah, very well put. I think Metropolitan uh, Seraphim of Piraeus, who we spoke about on our really in-depth interview about bishops who have have made really the correct rhetorical choices over the last few years, you know, a for our episode regarding bishops, I think it's worth checking out because we mentioned both Metropolitan Seraphim, uh, of course, Metropolitan Neophytos there, and many others, Russians, Greeks, American bishops alike, Canadian bishops. It's really uh, definitely worth checking that particular episode out. But Metropolitan Seraphim, he's been uh, criticized by the Greeks, by the Greek liberals as being this radical in the past. And in fact, again, this will probably be be a sort of, I guess the liberals will say, oh, this is to your detriment. How can you excommunicate them? You're a, you're a despot. You're, I mean, he is a despot in, in the best way possible, liturgically speaking. But you're a, you're a tyrant. You know, the, other, the liberal bishops will probably rise up against them in Greece because unfortunately, just like in the, in the Russian church and other churches, there are some liberal uh, bishops in Greece. But his excommunication, his anathema of these particular people, it should stand. And in fact, if I was one of those politicians, even lukewarmly who voted yes in this particular election, I would be seeking penance and I'd be speaking to this metropolitan specifically because, again, when you walk up to the chalice in church, uh, you know it's even if you do commune and you are excommunicated, it is on the judgment will fall on you. So it's actually very scary. And in fact, if if any if any clergyman in the Orthodox Orthodox Church excommunicates you, and only a bishop can really do that, then naturally I think you should seek some some assistance right away. And this is like a good example of that. Fr- frankly, I'm just glad that. Uh, one at least one bishop of the Greek Church had the impetus to actually act out, and yes, very unfortunate that the only protests we see in Greece this week, um, you know, we did predict perhaps the Greek people would rise up and maybe this bill would be rescinded very quickly. Unfortunately, that did not take place. The only protests we see are related to, you know, the economy uh, protests. Like farmers are protesting in Athens and other towns. Everybody cares about money, even though the country's already sold out and taken, you know, it's completely taken control by the banks. And I understand maybe the farmers do have righteous things to protest about, but we see no protesters against this new gay marriage bill in Greece. That's the that's the truth of it. If you Google it, nothing really comes up. Uh, the Greek telegram channels are quite silent. So unless there is a complete media blackout, right, Conrad, like, and this is like really deep conspiracy, unless the media is really not showing us what's happening on the ground in some of these Greek cities. And if, so if 
Greek monks are just uh, you know chilling and relaxing and nothing's really taking place. And we know Greece has some of the most monasteries per capita, like literally uh, per like kilometer square. If nobody really cares about this bill, perhaps uh, those things that Metropolitan Neophytos spoke about and what Metropolitan Seraphim of Piraeus warned about, they will come to pass. And yeah, it's just quite a, quite a negative quite a negative sort of story this week, continuing on from, from the last. But I think positively speaking, when we do get to the Ukraine segment, there's, there's been some great miracles actually taking place in the north, which shows that God's grace is still on his people, uh, you know, regardless of which land they're from and what's taking place around them. And I, I think the best story yeah. here is... So yeah, regarding that, before we move on, I want to say there was a priest, Father Vasilios Voludakis, who he's told a story, and this was only in January. He talked about how he had a conversation with a parishioner who I guess was a homosexual, and that parishioner told him straight out that there were 175 members of parliament that are going to vote to legalize gay marriage, and that's almost exactly what happened. And then, suspiciously, Father Vasilios, he ended up passing away on February 19th, so people are wondering if... <laughs> You know, something bad happened to him and he was maybe taken out. But besides Metropolitan Neovitos, even priests and people that have, you know, been working hard behind the scenes to be... Father Vasilios was also very anti-vaccine and these other things. It seems that the powers that be in Greece are a bit frightened of some of these figures and what they're doing. But I think we'd rather talk about a few more encouraging stories right now and some miracles happening in Russia, Dimitri. Yeah, absolutely. That Masonic threat is always present, you know, whether you're in Europe or in Russia. But in Russia at the moment, some great things are taking place. So the Trinity Sergius Lavra, there's a massive icon standing there of St. Sergius right next to his relics. And this is the most important monastery, the, the largest and historically most relevant monastery, uh, just 150 kilometers north of Moscow. The icon of St. Sergius began streaming myrrh just after the fall of Avdiivka, and very heavily so to the point where the camera, you know, moves up all the way to the glass and you can see just droplets of myrrh everywhere. It's just really quite, quite stark. And usually that icon, it's one of those icons which isn't really an impressive work of art or anything, so it's quite striking to actually see it stream uh, like obviously the rublev trinity looks a lot more appealing which used to stand right next to it and in fact so that entire cathedral is definitely full of holiness and god's grace which is really encouraging that you know such miracles still occur considering that russia is engaged in this very this essentially really striking powerful war with the western forces i mean it's just uh, completely underlines essentially everything metropolitan neophytos has said about the forces of evil rising up against russia and orthodox nations we see a very similar miracle occur, occur right next to Avdiivka in the Donetsk People's Republic. Father Dmitry Vasilenkov states that he was having a procession as Avdiivka was being sieged by the Russian forces around a monastery near Donetsk, and he, you know he was leading the he was leading the procession. But somebody in the procession was carrying a small icon of Saint George the Great Martyr, so Saint George the Victory Bearer who slew the dragon. This icon, in fact, was not the typical icon of Saint George where he's mounted on a horse slaying the dragon with a spear, but in fact it was just the, like a small torso head icon of the of the saint which are very common in greece as well so just the head of the saint is present the icon is holding it in his hands and suddenly the icon began streaming myrrh during the procession and not just myrrh but it the entire procession began to smell this very powerful like a perfume or an incense just the grace filled aura started filling the entire vicinity and this is outside as well this is february so it's quite cold as it's somewhat windy in that area still just an amazing kind of story that speaks to the fact that the lord the lord is still present despite all these really negative events happening around the world and you know just a really uplifting 
And you know, this all comes to light again. These great things are happening on the Russian side of the border. Meanwhile, how is how is the how are the Ukrainians reflecting this? Or you know, any sort of miracles? Are we seeing anything of the same? No, in fact, we're seeing the persecution of of, of the church further. In you know, one of the Hasidic capitals of Ukraine, the city of Dnipropetrovsk. A priest, Father Alexei, was in prison for five years. The court has officially sentenced him, so he'll be set, probably heading off to some prison in Western Ukraine, essentially a confessor of the faith at this point. Um, and he was uh, imprisoned for only believing in, you know, he was pro-Russian and he was posting some pro-Russian things online. And in fact, that's what he was in prison for, for spreading allegedly anti-Ukrainian propaganda. So an Orthodox priest, an Orthodox parish has uh, has lost a priest today in Ukraine, which is very unfortunate. We need to pray for Father Alexei. Uh, in in other I guess uh, interesting news we have again new confessors right new saints as you know Metropolitan Theophilus did say new saints will be rising up we see this in Ukraine in live as the house of Metropolitan Theodosia of Cherkasy his house was raided by the SBU these are the Ukrainian feds the Ukrainian version of the FBI CIA sort of intermixed because they acted both domestically and externally and this force has raided his house they've given him a notice that look based on your recent videos that you've been releasing on telegram and you know youtube and things like that about the ukrainian armed forces seizing monasteries we we you know acknowledge that this is fake news and this is russian propaganda and so you are facing potentially if if we take you to court eight years of prison and when the metropolitan was handed this legal notice he had a heart attack and now he's in prison recovering. So Metropolitan Theodosius uh, of Cherkasy, you know, he needs our prayers. He's, he's a person who's been tormented just like Patriarch Tikhon of Moscow back in the day by the Bolsheviks. And he eventually died from heart complications in his early 60s. But that's what they do. If when they can't actually take you out physically through assassination or like, you know, like Conrad, you mentioned that really powerful priest uh, in Greece, you know, who, you know, these priests begin dying mysteriously or they're bullied or they're in fact uh, stressed out to the point where they actually like ailments begin occurring within them because again the, this is f spiritual as well as psychological and physical warfare that they're facing so yeah there are these there are these stories powerfully from the from the front lines in fact they should probably inspire people both in Greece and Russia to actually look forward and ahead and uh, you know maybe re-engage more with Christianity in, in order to uh, lead their societies forward. So we, we definitely have a variety of news from this week, both positive and negative. But generally speaking, I think what's happening on the front lines, despite the losses in Greece, in Russia, it's uh, it's looking quite quite blessed, I think. And these new miracle most streaming icons are really an inspiration. When you talk about the success on the front lines, as of recording this, it appears that the Russians have taken over half of Robotine on the Zaporozhye front, and that the Surovikin line and the general front line will be basically leveling out. And that means all of the Ukrainian incursions will have been completely pushed back. We mentioned Kherson earlier, and of course, Avdivka has been taken. So this is, this is big news, and they are perhaps stabilizing this front line in preparation for something larger, which we can only hope for at that point. But... Yeah, I mean, this has been an exciting episode. We talk a lot about, I mean, it's really, like I said, a, a good World War Now episode about specific things going on in these wars, about a lot of prophetic words from our hierarchs. And of course, you know, when it comes to the Transnistria thing, that's just right up our alley. But before we wrap up, we have to talk about this one other story. Well, there was the big AT&T outage in America, which everyone accused of being a Russian cyber attack. I don't know if there's been any evidence of that. We have been covering, Russia has been, you know, inflicting some pretty big cyber pain on Poland and even Eastern Germany with some of their, I think, cyber tests that they've been doing, taking out internet, taking out other sorts of things. But we have seen the sort of predictive programming with, you know, the Russian space EMP, the space nukes. We hear that China has 
uh, we hear that China is working towards those capabilities as well here in America, but I actually didn't really experience much of an outage despite being an AT&T customer. I was in DC at the time when that all happened. So it, it could just be another, maybe it was a false flag to prepare people for the idea of a Russian or Iranian cyber attack, because we know the Iranians are also very advanced in cyber warfare. But with that small story aside, the last interesting story we wanted to talk about here is that the United Arab Emirates is buying an entire city from Egypt. That's right, they're buying the town of Ras al-Hekma, northwestern coast of Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea, for $35 billion. And that's to be $15 billion in advance. And then over two months, the other $20 billion would come in. And this is obviously one of the largest foreign direct investments that's ever really happened, obviously, with Egypt and the UAE, it's the largest. And I guess the UAE are trying to turn this into some mega tourist port commerce city on the Mediterranean. And the Egyptians have said that this injection of liquidity will help their current economic crisis. And Egypt is, you know, they're, they're in hot water in a lot of ways. Of course, they've got the Rafah crossing in Gaza and the duty that they have there. They have their crisis with Ethiopia and their water crisis, how the Nile is drying up as Ethiopia prepares to complete the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which if they decided to fill the reservoir at the pace they want to, it would basically destroy Egypt's, you know, water capabilities. And they're now selling, you know, cities off to the UAE. I can't imagine other countries, people would be happy with their leadership selling off their land and cities to other countries because it's said that the people that live there are going to have to, you know, they're going to be compensated eminent domain type stuff. I mean, what if you don't want to leave? You know, that's kind of a kind of an interesting question. So it's it's an interesting development. And I think this is kind of one of the nodes that shows the kind of the future we're going into. We have these big powers, these big oil money barons in the Gulf and these places, and they have this crazy liquidity. They're these monarchs with their corporate supporters that they can just go around and do all of these crazy things. We've seen Dubai and these other places become these, you know, these kind of party, ultra-rich meccas with all of the energy money coming into these places. And as, you know, certain powers and people and leaders, you know, consolidate power, become more monarchical as we think things are moving towards, you know, the age of Caesars, we're going to see more unilateral decisions like this with interesting uh, political and geographical, I guess, developments in the world that wouldn't really have been thinkable in the 20th and early 21st centuries. But people are thinking outside the box, multipolarity is rising, and things like this can happen. You know, maybe we're going to see city-states become a thing again. I guess in a way, the Emirates and these other places are somewhat city-states. But as those places become more relevant and multipolarity rises, I think we may see a return to a more diversified form of statecraft around the world. Yeah, I think that's a very important notes to end on, especially since, you know, well, we're looking at the world now, there's a lot of blood money going around, there's money from different oligarch circles, there's essentially at this point, there's money from royalty going towards buying more commercial, uh, I mean, property, which will be commercialized. And the Egyptians, again, they don't have a really choice, they have to probably sell this land off in order to fund the new refugee camps that they're building in the Sinai Peninsula. It's all tied, like money is very much tied to the lives of people. And of course, the price of blood is being discussed here at this point you know the, the blood of these uh, muslim and christian palestinians which again which is being spilt in the levant i think it's a big consideration notice how the uae is really not supporting any of these palestinians only rhetorically right but again the money is being spent to actually build up more of their commercial strength abroad and egypt just has to take that money because it needs to support the future Palestinians, which will be naturally, most likely, in the next few weeks, pushed out of Rafah and out of Gaza, and the cultural genocide which will be committed upon them will leave Egypt with no choice but to, but to take them in as refugees. So it's very unfortunate, and I think it just pushes us towards this uh, future, which uh, will look 
quite dystopian, I would say, especially with all the various technological developments taking place, but as well as the just the the price of human life is definitely going down. Simply, just as Mitch Bolton, the author, said, these people don't care about the 8 billion population. They need the world to have 500 million people at most. That's what the globalists care about. The price of human life is very cheap. They care more about land, commercial success, and money. That's very true. I think we're going to wrap it up here. Of course, tune in next week. We're going to be talking about the South Carolina primary. Trump is about to trounce Nikki Haley in her own home state there, so stay tuned for that. We're going to be keeping a close eye on this Transnistria question. Follow us on all the socials, obviously, to see what happens with that Congress, the 28th and the 29th. We're waiting for that. Obviously, we're watching the Houthis and everything they're doing. We're watching the Temple Mount with what these Kahanist Zionist crazy people may or may not be thinking. And obviously, we're watching Armenia, Azerbaijan as well as, you know, potential invasion and a continuation of the Artsakh war, you know, goes into Armenia proper, that would be a dramatic escalation and a big move in the Turkish world, which pushes us towards that war moment where they move on Greece and then Russia does its thing, you know, that St. Paisios moment. So we're here watching it. Obviously, follow us, worldwarnow.co. That's worldwarnow.substack.com. Both links work. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Follow us on Telegram, worldwarnowtelly. Follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. I'm going to be posting more here in Russia, here on the sec- on my second trip. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. Uh, be sure to follow us on YouTube, World War Now. Subscribe. It really helps us out. Like the videos. Leave comments. That also helps. We follow us on Rumble. We've got some backups there. It'll always be a good backup to have. And be sure to get behind the paywall if you want to support the show and hear every episode of Ether Hour. We're going to have that Q&A thread up. So get behind the paywall and you can ask a question in that thread that should be up as you're listening to this. So be sure to do that. And all you people that already support, thank you so much. Apologies for no Ether Hour this week. I hope you can forgive me as I'm traveling and doing some pretty cool stuff. So with all of that, you know, thanks so much for listening. Dimitri, I'll let you send it off briefly. Thank you guys for your support. We're always looking for more feedback and we appreciate um, you know, the information, the links we've been sending us. A lot of people actually sh- sharing these big interviews uh, with high rocks of the church, some of the news. Naturally, feel free to send us in any information that you think we should cover on the show in the coming week. And we appreciate all your help. We look forward to hearing more about your trip, Conrad, as you tell us about the Third Rome and what's taking place there. So thank you guys. God bless y'all. <laughs>